There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Cutting the Distance Podcast. I'm excited to be here because this episode is all about you guys. I'm answering your questions this week. Um, These are some of my favorite podcasts to do because I make sure that I hit specific topics. And a lot of these questions that I've compiled, there's multiple questions on the same topic. Now, in all honesty, Almost all the podcasts are about you guys because a lot of the direction I choose to go each week depends on the type of questions that come in. But these will just be answering specific people's questions. So what I want to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about some testimonials that we've got. I'm going to answer a few questions and then we'll even uh, maybe give some life advice. So let's get it going. You know, if this is actually the first podcast you're listening to, it will really help you become a better hunter. Now, I can say that because I personally maybe like the tips that we give, but I think that it's better coming from someone else. So let's read some testimonials. So the first one comes from Dan. He says he's an avid listener and he lives at the East Coast, but tries to make it out West annually to hunt somewhere. Dan writes, your New Year's resolution episode made me think about what else I could do to make my experience even better, and I've started leaving my boots along with pack containing three 10-pound dumbbells wrapped in towels at my front door and just put it on every day while walking the dog. Also, your episodes about still hunting made me realize how much I watch my feet while walking, so I've added keeping my head up while walking the dog to my daily routine as well. Turns out, I can turn a dog walk into a daily exercise in being a better hunter. Keep up the great work, Dan. That's awesome. That is some inspiration right there. There's so many things that you can do in your daily life to make you a better hunter. And you can take some of these tips 
into everyday things, just like walking around, keeping your head up, paying attention to things. When you go on a walk or an exercise, throwing that pack on, wearing your boots outside of the hunting season, all those little things are just huge when it comes to now turning what you're doing in your daily life into it's hunting season and how am I going to be more successful. So thanks for that, Dan. We've got one more testimonial. And as always, feel free to email. I'll give you guys the email at the end of the podcast, but you know we'll be looking for some testimonials and some other things. So these are great. We, there's a lot of them, and I love reading when people have success from something in this podcast. So this one, I thought this one was really awesome. It says, Remy, just harvested my first pig with a bow. Last night, while waiting on some does, a saunder of pigs ran by my stand at about 110 yards out. Usually, I would have waited at waited it out, hope they came into range, but I had recently listened to the Practice on Small Game podcast and decided to expand my repertoire. I got down, slipped off my boots, thanks to the shoes off situation episode, and crept into 20 yards, smoked a nice little 40-pound sow, and was able to share it with a buddy who hadn't had much success this year. I never would have had the confidence to try and stalk without your show, and I'm so blessed to be in a situation where I can share the harvest with others. Thank you for putting together such helpful content. It's benefiting both listeners and those around us. Please keep up what you're doing. It helps more than you know. Respectfully, Nate Mason. Thanks, Nate. I am super stoked that that worked out for you. It's really cool to to hear people kind of doing something a little bit different, maybe getting out of their comfort zone and finding some success. I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast, you know, it's it's very Western-based hunting, yet there are tips and tricks that everybody can pull no matter where you hunt, whether you're in North America, the South Pacific, Europe, it doesn't really matter where you hunt. A lot of the things that I talk about ring true to so many different places, species, other things. So I'm, I'm super excited to hear that. It's great when somebody finds success in a way that they didn't think and maybe tries something a little bit different, thinks outside the box, and comes home with some meat. Let's jump into the first question. I always love questions about elk. If I were to think about something that I would do, I mean, I, I honestly could probably do an elk podcast a week and just make this a full-on podcast on elk hunting. I've done a lot of elk hunting. I have a lot of experience with it. I've guided professionally for elk. I've spent thousands of days chasing elk throughout every season. So when it comes to talking about how to hunt elk, I'm super passionate about it. I love it. And I feel like there's a lot of things that I've picked up just doing it so much that I can share. So anytime elk question comes in, I, I'm super excited about that. And in the future, one thing you can look forward to is maybe uh, a good another series on elk hunting because the calling last year, that was probably one of my favorite ones to do. You could probably tell my passion about it while I was doing it. And people, you know, a, a lot of great response. Now, I understand not everybody elk hunts, but gosh, everybody should. And this, hopefully this podcast will inspire people to try it if you haven't. So here's this question. My question is about elk scent. I've come to learn from you and others, elk rely heavily on their strong sense of smell to avoid predators. But I never hear you or others talk about any scent blockers, sprays, wafers, etc. to use to prevent this. Much like the ones we use in the Midwest for whitetail hunting. Is there anything that is effective to use for scent blocking and do you use anything? Thanks, Dan. So that is a great question. And this is a question that has come up so many times. I just, I can't even, uh, there's just like 
between social media and this email. So many questions about scent. Now, when you're whitetail, you have to understand the type of hunting you're doing and how scent control plays in. So I'm I'm not going to discredit scent control when it comes to stand hunting for whitetails. Because when you're stationary, you know, you do everything in your power to get the wind right for your stand, but you also aren't 100% sure which direction the animal is coming in from. So there's there's sprays, there's, uh, what, what are those, um, ozonics type ozone blockers, there's scent wafers that, now a scent wafer, if you aren't familiar with it, would be like a doe and estrus scent on uh, almost like a cotton type wafer, uh, I don't know, like a piece of plastic. It just depends what it's on, but, um, it holds the scent. So it could be maybe a buck urine scent. Uh, there's other things like cover scents. People a long time ago, my dad used to use for antelope hunting out of a blind, used to use just skunk spray. Um, so those would be to mask the scent and then things like, uh, doe estrus or, um, buck urine or whatever, maybe to kind of be a, to mask the human scent as well as maybe use as an attractant. So when you're sitting there, you know, the wind's going to do something. You're going to base your stand on where you think the animals are going to come in from, and then you're going to pick a stand so that you're downwind from that. But deer might circle around. They might come in from a different direction. The winds may swirl and you can do nothing about it because you're stationary. So using scent control in those scenarios may give you a slight advantage if the wind shifts or starts blowing toward an animal and they don't wind you because you're you're up in a tree, you're you're using some kind of scent control and it gives you a little bit of an advantage over that animal's sense of smell. Because for almost all the animals we hunt, big game animals, their sense of smell is way tuned in and it's their first instinct is to always run when they smell danger. Whereas if they see something off, they might kind of look, stare, and you can get over it. You cannot trick the nose of an elk or a deer. Now, why does that not translate to Western big game hunting? Well, it's the style of hunting. So when we're talking about spot and stock and moving around elk hunting, in order to kill an elk, you could sit a stand and that is possible. So I would say that if you were stand hunting for elk, sure, use the scent blockers, use the sprays, use the ozones. If you're sitting in a blind or whatever, you could even use scent wafers, whatever. Now, if you're hiking around, that stuff is immediately rendered useless as soon as you start hiking. Because what happens is your body starts sweating. The sweat goes on the outside of your clothing. You're moving around. So in order, scent control for spot and stock hunting, still hunting, hunting on the ground is just using the wind. There's no better scent control than getting the wind right. So that's going to be your number one focus. So it doesn't matter how much spray you spray down with. If that wind shifts after you've been hiking and running around the mountains, they're going to smell you. I know because I've tried it. I used to bring a bottle of spray down stuff on hunts with me before I'd stock a mule deer, I'd spray down. And it's not a bad idea. If you're, if you've got some swirling winds, maybe it'll give you a slight advantage. You will notice like the first day that you hunt, animals are less likely to wind you, but on a backcountry hunt, you, you aren't showering every day. Your clothes aren't clean. You know, I'll wear the same pair of clothes every day for five days just because it's that's the feasible way to hunt. So scent control kind of just renders itself useless because when the wind shifts, no matter what you do on top of it, they're going to smell you. Now, specifically with elk, I have had, uh, when I was guiding one time, I had a guy bring one of those 
elk scent wafers. So it was like a cow estrus scent, and he had it pinned onto his hat. About the first day, he got back in the truck, and I said, hey, let me see that scent wafer. And then I threw it out the window. The reason is, <laughs> is because the first thing is, a lot of times when you're chasing elk or whatever, they can smell the other elk in the herd. And if they smell the cow next to them, but your scent blows to them, they're still going to smell you. Like the, the live elk won't mask your scent. So just adding it to yourself really isn't going to help. The other crucial thing in elk hunting is I use my nose a lot when hunting. I, I hunt into the wind and there's so many times I would say, I don't even know what percentage, say 70% of the time when I'm hunting in somewhere that's, uh, especially archery season or in thicker cover, I'll smell the elk before I see them. And that cues me into knowing where the elk are, where they've been. Elk are very pungent animals. You can smell wallows. You can smell where they've been by urine on the ground. You can actually smell the smell of an elk. Once you practice it, you can actually distinguish the smell between the smell of a bull, the smell of a cow, and the smell of where a bull's been and the smell of a live animal. And I've used that training of the sense of smell to turn that into success. So if you have say a scent wafer that's blocking your sense of smell, you're really actually just limiting yourself. So the key is use the wind, use your nose, and you're going to be a lot more successful. So you just will find more success without those things. Now, if you decide you're going to hunt a blind or something like that, feel free, go for it. You know, if you hike into your blind, hike in in one set of clothes, then change your clothes, spray down, sit in your tree stand. Scent control works for tree stand hunting, does not work for hiking around spot and stock hunting. Here's another elk question. So we'll just keep it in the in the elk family here. It says, hi, Remy. Thanks for the Cutting the Distance podcast. I'm learning so much. And as a beginner, I'm learning a ton from the info you share. I've listened to every show you've put out, and there's no better resource for me. Would you be willing to do a show on how to go from basic archery skills and some hunting experience to archery hunting elk? It seems like a huge leap for me. I've hunted for pigs with a guide and done waterfowl and upland hunting with friends and mentors, but there seems to be a huge leap required to get into something like archery elk hunting. What kind of plan could I put myself on to be ready next season? And then he says, I'm already working on my New Year's resolutions uh, to be a better hunter, although I have to admit I've done zero of the 100 miles with a pack. Thanks, Evan. All right, so what I'm going to do, I think I'll just break it down into five steps. Okay, so these are going to be the five steps. If you have not hunted elk before, archery elk, here's how you're going to get started. Step one, you're going to pick the area to hunt. So what you got to do is you got to narrow it down to a state and a unit. That right there, once, once you've decided that, then you can start to make your plan. So there's only a few states where you, this can be possible now because we got we to gotta make a plan. We're doing it for this year. So Utah is available. Montana is not due yet. So you could still obtain a tag in Montana. You could look to Idaho and you could look to Colorado. Wyoming, it's too late. You had to do that by January. So that one's out. And then there's other states that have a lot of draws, but you're going to want to pick an area that's more of a general unit where you can kind of guarantee yourself a tag. So general area, Montana, general areas in Utah, some of those you can actually get uh, later too. They have leftover tags. If you go back, there's actually a podcast on draws and units and tags. So definitely listen to that and then kind of 
make a plan, and find somewhere to hunt. Once you have that, you can narrow it down to a unit you're going to go to. Now, step two, plan a week in mid-September. So you're going to archery hunt. You want to find a hunt that hits the peak of the rut. It's just going to be better for you. I prefer either the the mid-September. So I'm actually going to pull up my calendar right now. I'm going to pick some good dates for you. I don't have them off the top of my head, but normally around the 19th, I always just find the 19th is kind of like peak rut. So, oh, this week you've got a Saturday, the 19th, and you can hunt to the 26th. Man, that should be a good date to hunt. A little bit early would be that week before, but if you're going to go weekend to weekend, if I was to pick one weekend, I'd go the 19th to the 26th. That's just, you know, peak rut if you can, if you can swing it. So step two, pick a date in September. And you want to try to get peak rut because if the bulls are bugling, they're going to be easier to find. It's easy for elk hunting's cool for something during archery season for people that have never done it. Because if you're in an area and you aren't finding elk, sometimes they'll just yell at you and tell you where they're at. They're like, Woo! I'm over here, dude. So that's great. Now, step three, this is the research section. You've got your unit, you know, you've got your dates. Now, Talk to people that have maybe hunted the area. Go use social media for good. Find people that have maybe hunted that certain area. Talk to them. Maybe uh, talk. read some stuff on fishing game websites about the unit. You'll be surprised how much information the Department of Wildlife for each state has. You can go to each specific unit. They'll tell you where the highest concentrations of animals are in the unit. And it'll just really help you narrow it down. Then you're going to e-scout at home, at night, maybe every night before bed, you can take your maps out, get the Onyx hunt app. That's honestly the bet. I like, I literally, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I'm not on that. Just completely scouting new areas, looking at new stuff, maybe trying to find something new because it's got the unit borders. It's got everything. Go back to one of my e-scouting podcasts, re-listen to it with that in mind, like have it out, look at it, listen to it. And I'm going to be doing some more in-depth stuff in the future. So just keep listening to the podcast, but that'll help do some research on that and just start figuring out where you're going to hunt, make a plan, take some notes. And once you have a plan, figure out, okay, I'm going to check out this area. So up until that point, step four is going to be practice, practice with your calls, your bow, as well as just like get in shape, do that, do your training, follow through with your becoming a better hunter, get that hundred miles in the summer, shoot your bow as much as possible and practice with your calls. The best time to practice with an elk call is when you're driving by yourself. Have some, if you don't know how to use a diaphragm call, get a couple diaphragm calls, use those. God, man, it's just, it's so handy to have a call in your mouth that you don't have to use your hands, but then also get some read calls, practice some bugling, practice some cow calls, and I'll try to do a few more calling, elk calling episodes in the future too. So, but there's plenty of resources out there. So that's it. Practice those calls. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? 
You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Now, step five execute your plan. You're going to pack up your truck. You're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to get out. You're going to get into the unit. You're going to have a plan based on a map. You're going to follow that map and then start hunting. Start looking for elk. Once you're there, you're going to have a lot better chance of being successful than if you just think about it and say, oh, that's something that I don't know how to do. The key is to just dive in, to get out there. Whether you're successful or not, you're going to learn something on that trip that's going to help you in the future either way. But odds are, if you're out there, the chances of getting an elk are a lot better than, or infinitely better than if you stay home. Also, if it's your first time, man, invite someone to go with you. Find somebody that might be interested. It's a lot easier mentally and just splitting costs of travel and doing something new like that if you've got a buddy with you. So go out with a buddy, find a buddy to go with you and enjoy the experience. And that's it. Just do it. And also, one thing to think about when you start planning that trip, scroll through the list of the past podcasts. There's something that kind of covers every one of those steps. So once you have that in mind, re-listen to those because you'll probably pick up things that you missed the first time if you already listened to it. And I suggest that for everyone. If you're, if you're planning something, there's something in one of these podcasts that kind of lines up with what you're planning on doing. It's something that you want to learn more about. Do that and then... Maybe even take some notes on things. Okay, I need to I need to know this a little bit. And then find out, do a little more research on it. Maybe find some books or some other uh, online videos, whatever you can to help you with that. I like this question because it relates to a lot of things. I think I actually kind of wanted to do a whole podcast on this, but I want to talk about it just 
for a little bit here. So it says early season scouting tips for deer and elk, as in what to look for when scouting for elk as far as terrain, how early and when should I stop scouting for deer or elk, and what to do if you're seeing animals during this scouting season, but they disappear during the hunting season. So this is a great question. Uh, this is from Jesse Adam. So I, I really like that question because it is something that happens a lot. I think if you have access to scouting, you're going to hunt an area, starting in the summer is a great time to start. Now, I, I actually would consider consider scouting almost year-round if you can. So I like to go out in the springtime and look for, for shed antlers. It's just an enjoyable time. You see a lot of animals out there. I like to go later once the winter is worn off. Don't go too early. So late spring, early summer, I go kick around, look for sheds. While you're doing that, you're going to see a lot of animals on what would have been the winter range. Now, it's not necessarily going to be where they're at during the hunting season. So there's a lot of things like migration, other thing. But understand those animals in your unit. Where are they wintering? Then you're going to work backwards and say, where are they coming from? So the odds are that they're, they've moved from a high country area in the summer to a down low winter range. Winter, they're spending their time on north slopes that burn off snow. They've got a lot of feed and, and feel safe. And then in the summer, most of the bulls and bucks will go up higher into the mountains. Now it's summertime. Okay, we're going to be up at the tops of the mountains. This is where we're going to find the animals. So what I do then is I make notes of places that the animals are hanging out. So there's two type groups of animals. There are migratory and then there's resident herds. So the resident stuff is going to be the stuff that's not necessarily up at the top. So if you go to the top of the mountain, you're in the alpine, you're going to see animals there because a lot of animals will summer there. Now, if you're planning on hunting, say, an archery season or an early season, you're probably better off scouting and looking for resident animals. Animals that are in an area that they don't have to move, they probably won't change between winter and summer range. Those animals will probably stick around longer. But if you do go into the alpine, you start seeing animals, odds are that you will not find them when it comes time for your hunting season. So if you've if you've gone into the alpine, you see a bunch of uh, mule deer especially, they'll be velveted up, they'll be bachelored up, and then you've got, say, a... September muzzleloader hunt and you're like man I watched these deer all summer I go up there at the beginning of September and I cannot find a single animal what's going on well you have to factor in what happened so for mule deer they've shed their antlers and I find that most animals like if they're in the alpine or whatever they'll drop from their summer range about a thousand feet in elevation and they'll find a spot where they can kind of just bulk up and prepare for the rut that's coming on. Now, elk and deer are different. So let's just let's just pick mule deer, and I'll just talk about mule deer. And elk, you can kind of factor in a different way because what happens after the summer, elk rut in September. So the bulls might be in the alpine. Now they're going to go to groups of cows. So if you're scouting for elk, there's no time too early to understand where is a resident group of cows living, and then that group of cows will act as a magnet. Now, if you're hunting later in the season... You're going to decipher where the elk summering and where are they wintering. And then you kind of create on your map a line of like, okay, this is probably where they're traveling from. Now, I'm not saying you have to find the same elk on the winter range and then go find them on the summer range and cut them off. But you can kind of decipher, okay, they're here. They're going to here. They're going to be somewhere mid-range living where it's secluded, timber. They've got everything they need 
in between during that main hunting season. So that might be something in like October, November, you can kind of figure out their route along the way and then hunt those areas later in the year. So knowing where they are early, knowing where they are late can pay off. Now, something like mule deer, they shed their velvet. They're going to drop down, say, a thousand feet in elevation. The reason they do that, they're they're bulking up. They can be in the timber more because their their antlers are no longer soft. Um, they might even break off their bachelor groups, and then they'll start to prepare for the rut. So they're just going to bulk up because they're going to rut in November. But what you'll find is if you were seeing deer in the summer, say in the alpine you're going to now concentrate on areas of thicker cover lower on the mountain. So you'll know where they were and now pick spots in that same general area, say down the canyon in the thicker cover and really spend a lot more time looking because they're going to be harder to see. Uh, they won't be out in the open as often, but they should still be in that same general area. So I hope that helps. That's the way that I think about it. And it's, it's proven a lot of success over the years. All right, let's move on to the next one. It says, this actually just addresses something that I talked about earlier. So it said, Remy, you noted that you'll be speaking in Chantilly, Virginia on March 27th. So I'll be speaking at the Pope and Young Club there. It says, I don't see on the schedule when I'll be. So if I happen to know, give some info. Thanks, Leland. So yeah, I appreciate that. So Friday, the 27th, I'll be at the Pope and Young Convention in Virginia, in Chantilly, Virginia. Uh, they've got some, like a archery shoot around the hotel there. It should be pretty sweet. They've actually acquired 21, 22 archery world records, like the actual antlers, mounts, everything. And then the the core, the archery course is going to be um, like reproductions of a lot of the world records. So it's kind of cool. You can shoot at a foam 3D target that represents the world record archery as far as like size and everything. So that's going to be pretty sweet. So on the 27th, in the morning, I'm going to be doing a Western Big Game Q&A. I think that might be at 9 a.m. I don't think that the actual schedule's out yet, but this is just, it should be by the time this goes. So in the morning, I'm doing a Q&A. Then there's a luncheon panel at 11, and then there's a dinner at night. I think it starts at 6 or whatever, and I'll be the keynote speech during that. And they're going to do some other cool stuff during that dinner. So if you're in the area or you're traveling to that event, try to be there and you want to catch up with me, Friday's the day because I actually have to fly out the next day. I'm going hunting for red deer in South America. So if you want to catch me on that, awesome. I'll be around. And I think even Thursday, I might be uh, walking around shooting that course. So I really want to do that. That sounds really fun. So if you find me on the course, jump in, we'll shoot together. Let's, let's jump into a little life advice. You know, that's, that's always fun. Something a little bit out of the box. Uh, it says, Remy, I've got a monster of a question for you. It's a rough one. Looking to get into bow hunting. The hardest part is convincing the wife I need a bow when I've been rifle hunting for the past six years of our marriage. Now, here's the thing. I smoked a rack of ribs and a pork shoulder on my homemade smoker last weekend. She confronted me after I was complaining about my smoker and told me she's on board with me buying a new pellet grill, but can't get on board with a bow. What say you? Do I keep fighting the uphill battle, or do I concede and get the smoker? I told you this was a rough one. That's from Chad in Ellisburg, Washington. All right, Chad, that is a tough one. Here's the thing. I think maybe maybe you're just going about it all wrong. Now, you built a smoker, and the smoker works, and I understand wanting the pellet grill. So if you can get the pellet grill, 
gosh, that's a tough one. You've already, you're rifle hunting. That's great. Hopefully you're bringing home some meat. Here's my thought. If you want to get into archery hunting, but your spouse might not be on board, I think that you should make it a thing that the both of you can do together. Now, I don't know your wife, but I know that shooting a bow doesn't necessarily have to be about hunting. And there's plenty of people who I know whose wives really enjoy shooting. I've I've got friends that don't even hunt, that they go, I'm like, I didn't even know you could shoot a bow and not hunt. But what I would suggest is maybe before you do anything, make it a date. Go find a really good range that has rental equipment and a good instructor. Go out and make it a thing that the two of you can do together. Because I found that if there's anything you want to add to your life and you're taking time away from one thing and putting it into another, if you can make it about the both of you, if she starts to enjoy it, then you're going to get a lot more support for it. Now, I don't know how you and your wife work. Like if you're a good coach or if it, you know new into bow hunting, maybe you both find somebody. There's a plenty of ranges all over the place where they get kids women, new hunters, new shooters, just into shooting. Find something like that. Make it a make it a thing. Make it fun. Go do that and see if she enjoys it. Because the act of shooting a bow is really, I, I find it extremely enjoyable. Um, I just got my wife into shooting a bow and she absolutely loves it. Now, she enjoys hunting too, but it wasn't something she was always into. So actually just, was it yesterday, we were out shooting in the backyard she shot a perfect shot on the target and then actually like Robin hooded the arrow. And once that happened, I mean, I'm pretty sure she's hooked for life. So if you can get her on board, this might seem devious, but if you can get her on board, she's going to be way more likely for you to get on board. So I would go that route. Cause if it's going to be an uphill battle, just make it something that you guys can do together. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Uh, you should definitely take the offer of the pellet grill though, while it's on the table, because that doesn't mean that the bow's out of the question forever, you know, small victories, man, small victories. So if you got that pellet grill, you can make her happy. You can keep on cooking some good stuff and maybe, I don't know, or you just perfect that homemade smoker, sell those on eBay or trade a guy on eBay, a homemade smoker for a used bow. That's also a great idea. Buy the smoker, trade the old smoker for a used bow. A little bit of life advice. I don't know. That was kind of fun. So I'm going to really dig deep for next week and find some fun stuff to talk about going through some more of these questions because I couldn't really get to all of them. But I'll tell you what, in closing, if you have some questions, maybe you listen to this podcast, other podcasts, and you want your question answered, email me at remy at com. And then you guys can throw in some testimonials. You can throw in some questions. And if you just want some general life advice that isn't about hunting, throw those out there too. Those are kind of fun as well. I'm sure just mix it up a little bit. To help in the organization of it, if you have a testimonial, put that in the first part of the subject line. If you have a question, put that in there. And if you just have some life advice, put that in there. Maybe we'll get some funny stuff. So I'll try to do these. I, I try to, it's fun to do them about once a month or whatever, but if you've got those questions, email them there. And then if you just got short questions, you're like, ah, that might not be a podcast question at Remy Warren at Instagram. You can reach me there. I try to get to as many as I can. So feel free to reach out there as well. Now, if you don't have a question or you enjoy listening to this podcast, what have you, my next tip 
is to share this podcast with people you know that might also enjoy it and get them to subscribe. And if you aren't a subscriber, subscribe. Why subscribe? Because then the podcasts are there. It's easier to listen to and it'll just help you in the long run, hopefully. So if you subscribe already, get a friend to subscribe. If you don't subscribe, go ahead and subscribe. If you like the podcast, share it because hopefully we'll be able to make everybody a better hunter. And you guys, if you got friends that listen, you know, discuss some of the tips, plan a hunt together, do something new, and then tell me about it. Send me a testimonial. And if you got questions on whatever you're doing, shoot me those questions. So until next week, uh, keep the questions rolling. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.